This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to episode 236 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan? Okay, I got zero trick-or-treaters on Halloween. How many did you get, Leslie? I have no idea because we went to go see Boy Genius at the Hollywood Bowl with special guest Dave Cool for a song, so that was cool. Did you guys put out candy or did you just let people go hungry? No, we, we turned off the lights and we <laughs> let everyone go across the street to the amazing graveyard set that uh, one of our neighbors has every year that attracts a couple hundred people. So yeah, it was sad not giving out candy, but you know what? It was a nice change of pace to be able to get to go to the show. I'm not saying you made the wrong choice. Just you happen to actually live in a neighborhood that is kind of trick-or-treating friendly, as opposed to mine where there were actually nobody out in costumes around my neighborhood. So anyway, happy Lots Halloween. Of costumes at the Hollywood Bowl. How nice. How nice. Yeah. We were, uh, Natalie and I were uh, matching skeletons. So, or as she she called us, lazy bones, because they were onesies. So I was no, nice and warm. <laughs> no judgment. Was the concert good? It was great. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the fourth show I've seen this month. This will be our new segment. Leslie reviews the concerts she's been to because she's not a TV critic, but she can totally be a live music performance critic. Postal Service and Death Cab was number one on my list this month. U2 at the Sphere was number two. Brandy Carlisle and Friends at the Hollywood Bowl is number three, and I love Brandy, so putting her at, at three was crazy to me. And then fourth, I put Boy Genius, just because I, I know their record, but I don't know as much as I know every, everything else in this month. So it's more about the lack of emotional connection to it as opposed to the actual performance. Yeah, but the musicianship was, I mean, the music was beautiful. And you can't find a better venue in L.A. for a crowd like that than the Hollywood Bowl. Except for when it comes to parking and getting in and out. The Uber. Perfect. Yep. Yeah, and well, in news that really matters to everyone else, the actor's strike continues on and is, again, still reportedly close as both sides are closing in on a new three-year minimum basic agreement. Negotiations we hear now are hinging on artificial intelligence as the Performers Guild is trying to make that airtight because obviously AI threatens actors in a way that is far more severe and serious than the threats of writers. So not that I'm saying one side is more important than the other or whatever, but uh, yeah, it's a tough negotiation as as it turns out. So as we always remind you guys, this is being recorded on Thursday afternoon so that is when we are speaking about things. If if there's a deal that comes in the next 24 hours, first of all, yay. But also, that is why we have not discussed it yet, but we will discuss it next week 
if that actually happens. But you can also go back to last week's conversation with our great colleague, Katie Kilkenny, who updated things on where they stood as of last week. And it's close enough. (laughs) And and we should say LA Press Club nominee for online journalist of the year, Katie Kilkenny. So congratulations to Katie and all of our fellow colleagues, as well as to you, Dan, on your multiple nominations. Plus, thanks to the Press Club for continuing to nominate TV's Top 5. Well, and also to you for all of your nominations. I wasn't going to thank myself and congratulate so but then that's why and that's why i did it but also for nominating the podcast we can both say that so anyway thanks thanks well with all that out of the way we're gonna start where we normally start again with headlines because what a busy week dan number one Up first, Disney will buy out Comcast's remaining 33% share in Hulu in the coming year, as both companies now turn to put an accurate valuation on the streaming service. Disney now is on the hook for a minimum, minimum of $9 billion. And yes, my my pinky is on my chin, a la Dr. Who am I trying to quote here? Um, Dr. Evil? Yes, Dr. Evil, indeed. I was going to say Dr. Horrible because I was just talking about that with someone, but that is that is something doctor. different but in some ways similar but yes so anyway this is news that i feel like we probably knew was coming but still yeah. it it's actually... not a, it's not a done deal because they have to figure out the, a proper valuation you have the next 12 months or so to figure that out good times uh speaking of hulu futurama has been given a two-season renewal at hulu which takes the revival and the former fox and comedy central animated favorite through its 14th season or Something like that. I when I attempted to review the uh, <laughs> the revival, it was very very funny how different sites and different listing services are counting different things as different numbers of seasons. Anyway, season twelve will premiere in twenty twenty four. And in Hulu development news, the streamer is prepping a new take on Prison Break. This being the second revival of Prison Break, I believe. Well, I guess it's not we're... really a revival. They're not expecting any original cast members to come back for this one, Dan. So it's just a different reboot? people breaking from different prisons. Anyway, it... it's a format. <laughs> sure, why not? I mean, it could be. There's no reason why you couldn't take it as an anthology. Each season, a different group of people break out from a different prison. Why not? Elgin James, the co-creator and showrunner from Mayans MC, is attached. And yeah, yay. (laughs) Moving on, the second half of Yellowstone's fifth and final season has landed a new premiere date, November 2024. So it's being pushed back a year on Paramount Network. Obviously, that's largely in part because of the dual strikes with the actor strike still not completed. Two more spinoffs, 1944 and 2024, have also been announced, and they will join prequels 1823 and 1923. Matthew McConaughey is expected to star in 2024, alongside some of the flagship's original cast, save, of course, for Kevin Costner. All of those shows hail from Taylor Sheridan, who is also behind the Paramount Plus dramas Lawmen, Bass Reeves, Tulsa King, Mayor of Kingstown, and Special Ops Lioness. So yeah, continuing to make good on the nine figures that he's being paid by Paramount Global. Making a Yellowstone spinoff called 2024 is so very silly and contractually goofy. I, I mean, I'm I don't... sure it'll be like Yellowstone colon. 2020, which Yellowstone colon now Yellowstone more now than the version of Yellowstone that we were doing before, which was already now. Yellowstone, colon, the same, but without Kevin Costner. Yes, I think that is basically what it's going to be. That is silly, but (laughs) whatever. 
moving over to <laughs> moving over to stars. Uh, it's the biggest show on the planet right now, Dan, and we're just like, eh. well, that's just. A, <laughs> I don't know. Our friend and colleague Matt Mitovich was tweeting about what a absolute delight it is to to have to Google for all of these titles that you're having to Google for 2024, having to Google for 1883, having to, it's just it's it's so. Silly. I, I I don't know what else to, to say about it. And look, obviously, Paramount Plus is in the do whatever Taylor Sheridan wants to do business. And I mean, look, structurally, like it, the idea of doing these like decade check ins uh, from the same like families, et cetera, from the same central family and to see how multiple generations have have adapted over time. Like that that's a great thing. Like I really did enjoy that. A similar idea when with boyhood, right? Like that's obviously a different not a family, but and it's not, gen, you know, every decade. But like there's there's a good idea here. And I think and it's, you know, and it's, it's different actors and different directors and a different setting and all of that. But otherwise, it's exactly like Boyhood. No, I mostly it's the 2024 version, the Yellowstone without Kevin Costner version that is silly, but whatever. Sort of, I view all of these as kind of the Yellowstone origins, colon, 1883, 1944, and then whatever, in the same way that, as we're going to discuss later in this podcast, clearly Lawmen Bass Reeves is the setup for future Lawmen anthology shows. Presumably, Special Ops, colon, Lioness is the setup for future Special Ops-related stories. Taylor Sheridan just likes building universes around himself and... God bless. Over at Stars, Stars has dropped the Ava DuVernay half-hour drama series that was set to star Josh Jackson and Lauren Ridloff. DuVernay exited the show after ending her overall deal with producers Warner Brothers Television. Yep, and speaking of shows that have been dropped, AMC has picked up Nautilus, a reimagining of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea after Disney Plus dropped the British series as part of its content write-downs. Stephen Colbert is expanding his relationship with CBS. He will serve as executive producer on After Midnight, the replacement for James Corden's Late Late Show on CBS. It is, of course, based to some degree on the At Midnight formula, which was previously a show that aired on Comedy Central after The Colbert Report. So it's all pleasant and coincidental. Uh, Somewhat amusingly, CBS put out a press release announcing the Colbert part of the equation and said, but a host for the show has not yet been announced. And then three hours later on his show, Colbert announced that comedian Taylor Tomlinson will host the new series. I generally like Taylor Tomlinson, so sure, why not? And I generally like the idea of women hosting late night shows. Heaven knows they needed to do something to that effect. (laughs) Yeah. Elsewhere, HBO has previewed its content slate for 2024 with The Jinx Part 2 due alongside the shortened eight-episode House of the Dragon Season 2, expected in early summer. Next up in the Game of Thrones franchise is the prequel A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, The Hedge Knight, which HBO chief Casey Bloys said would begin shooting in the spring, despite not yet being cast. Meanwhile, several shows that were expected to air in 2024 are now being bumped to 2025. Those include the third season of Euphoria, one of my favorites, season two of The Last of Us, the third cycle of The White Lotus, and the debut of IT prequel, Welcome to Derry. 
And speaking of HBO, content chief Casey Bloys has apologized for asking two staffers to set up dummy Twitter accounts so that he could fire back at critics who did not favorably review HBO shows. Critics from the New York Times, Vulture, and Rolling Stone were among those who were targeted. Bloys, during the Thursday press event that took place the day after Rolling Stone broke this story, called the six tweets a, quote, dumb idea. Dan, this is where you sound off. We did get multiple emails sent to TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5 at the numeral 5 at THR.com, asking us to respond to this. As you say, uh, people at the New York press event, that this was a mistake. He also blamed the timing, which was 2020 and early 2021, basically saying that spent a lot of time working at home and this is what happens. And, you know, look, I get the desire as the expression goes. Uh, success is the best revenge, but the second best revenge is getting an underpaid support staffer to make a sock puppet uh, social media account with uh, stock footage avatar to tweet sarcastic things at Alan Seppenwall. So success. Anyway, I mean, I have thoughts on this, obviously, but at the risk of continuing a vicious and pointlessly petty cycle. All I'm going to say is that anyone who thinks that Casey Bloys is the only person in Hollywood with enough peak, that's peak with a Q-U, to want to do something like this, but powerful enough to delegate the responsibility to do it to an assistant, you're very sheltered. I suspect that there are a number of executives and showrunners around town who have done similar things, who actively are doing similar things. If you've ever spent a quarter of a second in the comment sections of Deadline, (laughs) you've probably had suspicion that at least half of the posters were various powerful people's sock puppet accounts. So yeah, this, this does not honestly surprise me. And Yeah, I'm not bringing uh, Angry Dan out for this. Let's instead talk about how the upcoming 12th season of Letterkenny is apparently going to be the final season of Letterkenny. That, I am much more worked up about that. So I would would much rather talk about how much I'm going to miss Letterkenny than to talk about Casey Bloys getting assistance to tweet somewhat sarcastic things at best friend of the five, Alan Seppin. I'm going to miss Letterkenny. Darn it, that's sad. I really liked the rhythm that Hulu had gotten into of having a new season of Letterkenny come out every Christmas, and it will make me sad that this will apparently be the last of those. So yeah, those are those are my thoughts on Twitter bot gate or whatever nonsense we're calling it these days. Number two. Well, moving on next up, I don't know how to introduce this one, Dan, because I I fear that I'm just going to get very emotional. I'm going to try. The world has lost a friend. Matthew Perry, the actor best known for his 10 season run as Chandler Bing on the former NBC mega hit, passed away October 28th. He was 54. This one's hitting hard, Dan. It is, and it's hitting many people hard. You have a great story on THR.com where you talk to a lot of the people involved in development on the show and people just generally in the industry about why it's hitting hard. And I wrote an appreciation and excellent, excellent appreciation and, and talked about why it's hitting people hard. And it, it, it is, I, you know, I think people have people spent a long time being invested in Matthew Perry and being invested in Matthew Perry as someone who we cared a lot about as 
a person on our television who played characters who we related to and in some cases thematically resembled. I, I definitely feel as if a large number of people in our business who approach certain things with uh, sarcasm and occasionally cynicism definitely relate to a lot of the characters that Matthew Perry played so well. But also, I, I think people had a deep investment in in him as a person and in his well-being. And he just published his memoir last year talking about his fight with addiction and all of that. And I think there's a lot of care that people have for Matthew Perry as both a friend on the TV show and as just a person who people have worried about and cared about and invested emotionally in. And so, yeah, I think I think a lot of people have been hit hard by this. The article you wrote, it was a war in Littlefield who compared it to the death of a beetle? It was, yeah. And that's, you know, honestly something that I kind of teed him up for a little bit, but because I was trying to confirm the passing, you know, as a reporter, you get roped into covering anything, you know, especially if, if your colleagues know that Friends is your all-time favorite show and you happen to be a TV editor at a major publication like The Hollywood Reporter. Obviously, it was trying to separate my personal feelings from the job and having to email his publicists who probably found out the same way we all did from TMZ. You know, it's, I'm going to struggle here because it, it's just, I planned my life around that, that TV show when I was in college. Cause yeah, I'm, I'm an old and that was, I watched when it originally aired on Thursdays at eight. My group of friends always went out for dollar, dollar beer bust way back in the day. And I wouldn't leave the house until after friends was over. And I got to talk to another, uh, one of my uh, friends from school about the episodes. And, and once I was done, I'm like, okay, now I can go out, you know, because that's, it was whether I was working or studying or doing anything else. It's like, that was my show because it was watching my generation. You know, it's like watching the same thing. And I think one of the things that made that show so great and made Perry so great in it is he was the everyman, right? Monica was the every woman. Everyone wants to fall in love with, with their best friend. And that's an, an analogy that Carrie Burke gave me. But, you know, one of the things that as I was sitting with it over the weekend, it, I was trying to to put to words what the loss meant. And for me, I remember I was a, a senior in high school playing on the basketball team and softball team and volleyball team when Magic Johnson announced that he was HIV positive. And we canceled basketball practice. And instead, we all sat around the gym just kind of sharing our feelings about his announcement. I remember the year, the next year when Kurt Cobain, I was in college, Kurt Cobain died. And I remember hearing about it driving home from school on K-Rock. And they were playing all Nirvana songs when I got in the car. I'm like, wow, that's cool. They're playing all Nirvana. That's really neat. And then they broke in and, and said, in case you haven't heard, this is what happened. And I remember that, both of those things affecting me, but not in this, the kind of way that Matthew Perry, the way that his passing is affecting me. And it's because that character was your way in, right? Everyone kind of was trying to figure out who they were at that point in that in the show at the beginning of the show in the early 90s late 90s mid mid to late 90s and that's where I was as a young adult and you know you're trying to figure out your love life you're trying to figure out who you are in this life and and as one exec put it that was Matthew Perry's personal journey as well as Chandler's and I think when you spend 236 episodes with someone with these characters they become family and as another exec mentioned it's like people didn't just call them by their name they would go up to them and say hey Chandler you know I talked to Bob Greenblatt who did the show episodes with some of the friends folks for Showtime and he remember recalled a story when they were in London shooting and people would run up to Matt LeBlanc and be like, Joey, Joey, Joey. You know, it's like they were rock stars and they continue to be rock stars, even in, the, you know, years removed from their success on Friends. And I think this loss, it's, it is, you know, you spend 
you have dinner every every Thursday night with with Monica and Chandler and everybody else, right? You have coffee with them how, you know, hundreds of times, right? Like I, I've lost track how many times I've done a full rewatch of of the show. That was my comfort food. You know, when I used to have to, when I was dealing with insomnia early on, I would watch repeats on TBS or Nick at Night, and that would help me fall asleep. When Natalie and I first started dating, one of the first things that that we learned about each other is we both did that. And, you know, then we used to have a competition. It's, okay, how many friends have you interviewed? And I think I won that, by the way. But it's just, it's a special show for a lot of people, not just me. And I think that's why I'm struggling because his passing is... So it just affects you so many generations because the show not just was a hit for people my age who watched it originally, but then it became this global phenomenon when it the, when the show sold all over the world. I talked to another exec who shared a story about being in Italy and they aired Friends Thursdays at eight because they stole a page out of NBC's playbook, right? And it's like it was a global phenomenon. And then the streaming, whether it was first on Netflix or now on Max, so many new generations have found and, and fallen in love with this show because it does speak to a specific time in your life that it doesn't matter what generation you are, you it's a universal experience. And that's what great TV does. And I think that's part of why this hits so hard is because we all knew and loved him because he was our friend. It's a show that's about youth. And that's part of why people who are in their mid-20s now or younger can still watch it and and be inspired or not necessarily inspired, but, but can see it resonates still. And I think that a lot of the things that people, when they want to criticize the show, every young generation discovers it. And then every young generation at the same time discovers that it's quote unquote problematic. But part of why it's problematic is because of its snapshot picture of a, of a general idea of being in your 20s. And it wasn't a specific version of being in your 20s. And so as a result, it's lacking a lot of the specificity that people maybe wish it had, that maybe it doesn't reflect New York City and all of its uh, diversity, which it absolutely does not. There's no question about that. And the things about it that have aged absolutely have aged. Some of some of the gay panic and all of that, of course, it has absolutely aged. But what it is, is so much an elemental version of what youth is supposed to feel like. And so when when things and people that embody youth when they get old, but also when they die, it's jarring. We we had this same conversation when when Luke Perry died. Just that this person who in our minds will always be associated with being a freewheeling teenager even if in the case of Luke Perry, he was in his 30s when he was being a teenager. That's what the image is, always. And so, from, you know, it's already jarring enough. The the whole Friends reunion special, when we saw them and like, oh God, they're in their 50s. And yes, they're all extraordinarily well-preserved, but they're not supposed to age. They're supposed to always be between 25 and 35 forever. The fact that they're now in their 50s, even wonderfully preserved, will always be jarring. But Adding mortality to that is, you know, and, and so that's why the Beatles comparison is, it's it's an apt comparison on some level because the Beatles were an embodiment of a certain version of youthfulness. And the fact that all of these years later, 
that we come down and it's it's Paul and George, but that Paul and George, not Paul and George, Paul and Ringo, rather, sorry, that Paul and Ringo are the remaining Beatles, but that they're they're youthful old men, but they're still old men. It's still jarring, but the fact that John never got to get old, the fact that George died also still too young, it's always jarring. And I think that's what it is with Matthew Perry. And I think that also is kind of what stymied him as he progressed his career because he kept doing TV shows. He believed in broadcast television very clearly, and he wanted to do these shows that had elements of Chandler, but that kind of matured and deepened and darkened those elements of Chandler. And and he was just really good at it. My appreciation, I led with Go On, the NBC comedy that lasted for, for only one season. And I found it very gratifying, the number of people who came out on Twitter and everything to say, I loved Go On. It was a great show. And I, I hope I hope Matthew Perry knew that people loved that show, even if NBC only loved it enough to give it one season. But what was so notable about that show was that it took the Chandler Bing formula, which was here's a guy who who is sarcastic and he's using it as kind of a cover for the things that he's insecure about. It's it's a mask, but he can still always be funny because he's a character in a multi-camp sitcom to take a character in that case, who couldn't find the way back to being funny, who who desperately wanted to find his humor, but because of the wife that he was grieving, it just held him back. And so the character was only maybe half funny. He played those things really well. He played the the defense mechanism of humor, honestly, as well as, as anybody. And just, I, I wish that circumstances had allowed him to keep pushing that because I, I I do believe and we never got to see it but I do believe that he had a great performance that if uh, in him that was a dramatic performance that you know so if friends was 95% comedy with a little bit of I'm insecure and I'm unhappy and if maybe go on was maybe 50-50 I think he had a performance that was 95% dramatic with just a dark vein underneath it that that was a great performance and it just they're you know, just never, we never got to see it. And that's, uh, and that, and that comes down to truncated youth and, and why it hits so hard is the feeling that there was still a lot of Matthew Perry to go. And instead we don't get to see it. Well said, Dan. Well said. Number three. Up next, daylight savings time is this weekend and calendar is definitely in November. So, well, We're going to take a look at what we've got coming up in terms of TV premieres. So not a lot to choose from, Dan. It feels like you're starting to see a bigger impact from the strikes here. In terms of the major premieres, Lawmen, Bass Reeves on Paramount+. Plus, Apple has The Buccaneers. Season 2 of Rap Shit is on Max. For All Mankind returns for its fourth season on Apple. Beacon 23, which was developed by, let's see, that was supposed to be... I think it was AMC. No, it was Showtime. I think it was Showtime, right? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. remember. It, 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 it was developed for a different network, but it's going to air on, on MGM Plus, which was formerly known as Epics. The Curse launches on Showtime. You've got A Murder at the End of the World on FX Hulu. The Crown, the final season on Netflix. I know you must be very excited for that, Dan. Julia, season two, where you get to maybe talk to Chris Kaiser about a show that he made instead of, well, the writer strike. Monarch, The Legacy of Monsters, makes its debut on Apple. 
Scott Pilgrim takes off the animated version on Netflix. Fargo season five, some lots of Emmy contenders here, Dan, with between Fargo and, and Crown alone. And then speaking of Emmy contenders, Squid Game, the challenge, that's that's sarcasm. The reality show airs on Netflix. And then uh, you've got the new show from the Cobra Kai trio, Obliterated, that airs on Netflix after it was originally developed for TBS. So Dan, does it feel a little lighter this month to you? I know there's always a complaint that there's too much TV and I'm not saying you're wrong, but it feels like there might not be as much this month. No, I, and I honestly, I don't feel that way. I think what it, what the month feels like to me is it feels top heavy. It feels like an NBA team that uh, gave three players max contracts and then suddenly realized that it had no room whatsoever to have anyone on the bench. And it's just like, okay, let's hope that these three superstars can actually carry the team to the postseason. And sometimes they can, and sometimes uh, it's the Brooklyn Nets. Um, but that, that to me is what this feels like. Because in terms of the actual big ticket premieres, there's a lot of big stuff this month. There there just is. There just isn't a lot of little stuff. Like, obviously, the littlest stuff is the stuff that we're going to discover. It's going to be like, ooh, we didn't notice that at all. We didn't even mention that. But, like, in terms of big things, you know, The Crown is a massive show for Netflix. It is one of their biggest shows, and this is the start of its end. It will be notable for that. Fargo, the first three Fargo seasons are are totally favorite shows of mine ever. The fourth season was honestly the reason I didn't like the fourth season is because I felt it kind of overreached and and was not able to successfully achieve what it was going for. But it was only a, a failure of aspiration. You've got all of these big shows. I watched the trailer for Monarch Legacy of Monsters, which stars you know Kurt Frickin Russell, uh, and the trailer at least. I've watched zero seconds of the actual show other than what's in the trailer. So this is not in any way a review. The trailer makes it look like it is big. It makes it look like there is a lot of money that went into this. And that's awesome. You've got the curse. Freaking Emma Stone, who is once again in an Oscar conversation uh, for her latest upcoming movie. Now, of course, if you want to keep in mind that the last time Emma Stone did a television show, it was maniac on netflix which did not make a very large ripple then you could go okay simply having the uh the emma stone name is not necessarily a guarantee of success but still in all it's a guarantee of people taking interest plus nathan fielder plus the softy brothers that's that's a lot of pedigree um if you are a fan of for all mankind, you know that it is one of the biggest shows on TV. It happens not to be a show that Emmy voters have necessarily recognized in to the degree that they probably should have. But, um, you know, that's a that's a big show. And then there's a lot of stuff that's maybe less enthusiastic, but still big in its own way. You know, Squid Game, you made a joke, but Netflix is going to present it like it's a big thing. This Squid Game reality show where no one actually gets killed playing the games again i haven't watched any of our screeners the trailer to me is excruciating the trailer to me feels like it is a misinterpretation of absolutely everything that made squid game the television show interesting but still it it is <laughs> it looks and feels like someone went "Ooh, we're going to misinterpret the meaning of squid game and make it into a big reality show which is exactly what it is and then there are just these there are these brands that are are meaningful brands, maybe not to everyone, but to some people. And I'm referring, of course, to uh, the Santa Claus movies, because uh, there's a second season of that. But seriously, I'm probably much more excited about Scott Pilgrim Takes Off, which looks 
again, this is me just watching trailers. It looks right. So that's that's something. And and then you've got kind of semi-random things like Faraway Downs, the uh, Baz Luhrmann re-edited version of Australia, uh, which, sure, it's a TV miniseries version of a movie that failed. On the other hand, it's a TV miniseries that stars Hugh Jackman and uh, Nicole Kidman. And if you didn't watch Australia, then Faraway Downs is new to you, whether it's good new or something else. And again, going back to brand names, uh, when Baz Luhrmann did his Netflix show, uh, it didn't really light any fires. So I mean, know. the get down was great. The get down was, am- was ambitious. Um, I don't know that I felt like it was great as a series, but it was definitely ambitious. It was look definitely, how many, look how many cat like stars came from that. One or two. two. There, 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 uh, there, more there, than that. There are definitely, it, no, it was a good, it was a good cast. There was, and it, uh, there were things about that show. I thought were very good and things that I thought. I will just defend weren't. the get down forever, at least creatively on screen. The, the behind the scenes of it was a complete and total mess, and I've written about it a lot in my career. We all know how much I love a behind the scenes mess story, but yeah, I I, I loved it. I, I think it might have been one of like ten people. People people liked it, and I I will defend its aspirations. I will not defend how it was actually finally executed, but it's definitely the kind of show where you can imagine it beco- it having become something bigger and better and more even more ambitious as it went along. And instead that didn't happen. But anyway, so that was the last Baz Luhrmann TV show is, is what my point is. But this is again, just a re-edited version of a, of a movie that wasn't successful, which apparently is like a trend because AMC is doing the same thing with the Glenn Howerton, uh, Blackberry movie. They're expanding it into a three part limited series with cut scenes or something for some reason. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but no, there's this, to me, I don't necessarily know where the little shows are going to come from, but you never do. But there are a lot of big shows and there are a lot of shows that have established audiences, even if it's not necessarily exactly the sweet spot of our podcast listenership. Like Slow Horses is the kind of show that I hear about a lot from people who aren't industry type people. That That is a show that has a big audience. And when I questioned a week or two ago when they raised prices on Apple TV plus, um, you know, whether Apple TV plus had value at this point at three dollars at 43% more month to month, a lot of people reference slow horses as part of their list of the great and popular shows or successful favorite shows that are on Apple TV plus. It has a big audience is my point. Um, I get the feeling that Julia probably did also. It's just probably a slightly older audience, which is, which is how these things go. And yeah, the you know, lots of lots of adult animation. Uh you're going to hear in our in our next segment about one piece of adult animation in Blue-eyed Samurai, but like this weekend alone there's Blue-eyed Samurai, there's Invincible returning on Amazon. Uh there's something called Onimusha which has Takeshi Mikai in it involved in some way. Um yeah, there's there's a lot of ambitious stuff this month. Even if some of that ambitious stuff includes all the light we cannot see on Netflix, which I reviewed last week and which is very, very sadly garbage. But still, I, I am I am down for ambition and there is a lot of ambition in November. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Number four. Up next, with the writer strike officially in the books, we are thrilled to return to our showrunner spotlight segment this week. Our guests this week are Amber Noizumi and Michael Green, the married creators of Netflix's new animated drama, Blue Eye Samurai, the story of a young swordmaster's quest for revenge set against 17th century Japanese stigmas against her gender and biracial identities. While this is Noizumi's first TV credit, Green has worked steadily on the small screen over the past two decades, with credits including Heroes, Jack and Bobby, and stints developing Stars as American Gods and FX's Why the Last Man. He's also the creator of the acclaimed but short-lived NBC drama Kings. On the big screen, Green has written Logan, Blade Runner 2049, and the recent run of Kenneth Branagh-directed Agatha Christie adaptations, which started with 2017's Murder on the Orient Express. Welcome to the podcast, Amber and Michael. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. I was maybe halfway through the pilot when it kind of clicked for me that Blue Eye Samurai is Kill Bill meets Yantle. And Mm -hmm. I was very pleased after I finished it to go online and do a little Googling and see that that's exactly the comparison that Amber has made uh, in the past. I I was very relieved. It was literally in the pitch notes. It was on like the third paragraph of the pitch notes. Well, okay. So let's, let's talk about that because the Kill Bill of it is very obvious, but how much was Yantel a direct touchstone, both in terms of the creative process and then, as you say, trying to pitch this to people? Well, I love Yentl. I don't know if it's too niche or uh, if, our audience is too young to get that reference, but the attachment to Yentl's character by the great Barbara Streisand, she just is singularly focused on doing something that is only meant for men. You know that from, you know, moment one, and it's true to the end. And there's a hint of a love triangle there, which we were trying to allude to that early on in our series but ultimately it's just that that driving force and attachment to knowing exactly what she wants i assume though that kill bill causes lights to go on in some people's eyes does yentl cause those lights to get extinguished (laughs) (laughs) you know i I think we're at a point now culturally where if anyone knows yentl they love yentl Uh, or at least let's hope you know (laughs) So let's go back to the origins of the project. What were the first kernels of it? And when did it become clear that this was a story that that you both wanted to collaborate on? The origins were when we had our daughter over 15 years ago. And she was about four months old when I realized that she had bright blue eyes that were there to stay, not just the temporary blue eyes that most infants have. And being very excited about her having blue eyes and then subsequently realizing it's weird to be so excited for me having 
a child who looked white and not Asian as I expected her to look. So Michael and I started talking about what it would have been like to have blue eyes in Japan, especially during a time when the borders were closed and it would have been illegal to be white or white looking in Japan. But we really didn't start to seriously materialize the idea until we realized we could tell it through animation. And that was really the lightning strike, just the idea of, you know, that this genre of adult animated drama was going to, a new category of storytelling was starting to be formed. We were very early adherents of animation as a medium, not a genre. You know, we always thought of it as something could be for adults or for kids. But the minute we said, oh my God, that's the way to tell this, then suddenly all of our ambitions became assets instead of liabilities because it would have been an unproducible show in any live action incarnation. We would have had to cut everything that would have made it dear to us. It was a very short jump to knowing how, instantly we saw, okay, th these are the scenes, this is the shape. And we were lucky enough, Netflix agreed and bought it. And it was a very short hop from them saying, we like the idea to them saying we're greenlit. But in terms of short hop, Amber started off with a daughter <laughs> who, as you said, was born 15 <laughs> years ago. So yes. obviously not so much a, a short hop. Was this kind of just a back burner thing all of those years where someone had it as, as being an objective they wanted to get to eventually or? V very much so. Yeah. We, we talked about, it was, it was an open word document for 12 years, you know, for, for, for 10 years. And we just always said, wouldn't it be cool? And we got to know the characters in a very detailed way during that time. We just didn't know what to do with them until finally we went, that's what we do with them. It was a very real and fully formed concept from that moment on. Was it originally planned for you guys to take this to Netflix? At what point in this decade plus process did you say <laughs> this is where we should take it or it's ready to, to be taken out like how did you get to this point june 19 you know we put on our uh, willie loman suit and and did take it around town to a couple places that were interested all of the places at the time were very you know bullish on their streaming services expanding and really seeing animation as a global attention getter and netflix just was the most excited i mean plenty of places saw it as well and worth it but they were like we, we love this we want to do it the way you want to do it and they held true even though the executives changed Stand several times over. They have been creatively behind this 100%. Have you guys been writing on the sly together for years or was this kind of the perfect project where you were like, okay, now let's do this together? In our household, we have this sort of stream of conscious conversation where I'm like, what about this idea? What about that idea? And I just can read Michael mid-sentence. He'll just say something and I'm like, eh, I don't know. I don't know, but sometimes like, you know what, we should really explore that. And sometimes we take it deeper and sometimes we don't. This one, I think we just didn't know how it was possible to do a live action version of it. And so it just kind of sat around in the back of our minds for, you know, many years. I mean, back when we had the idea, we probably were, we had Netflix DVDs in our mailbox outside. It was not something that we would have considered. And the entertainment industry was vastly different then. And the scope of animation was not a possibility for people like us. Yep. No, no one had even tried to crack doing hour-long drama animation because just it's a pipeline that hadn't existed. We had to build schedules that just no one had ever imagined before. And they're still being refined. A few shows have done it now. It's great. We think it's a, a growing, it's weird to say genre, but category. Yeah. And it's also, you know, I would imagine part of the appeal here is that this is a, a series that can travel, not just, you know, air domestically here in the United States, but it can hit 
that global audience that Netflix is looking for. Certainly the hope. Netflix, they're very open about that, that they look for an international audience. And it may well be the reason why they got behind this as strongly as they did. Well, FX has a long gestating adaptation of, of Shogun. Yeah, and the trailer actually debuted uh, today as we speak. I saw yeah. that trailer this morning. It looks beautiful. And so that's a story that's set a couple decades earlier than your story here. But the remake that FX is doing has been conceived at least partially to do a story set in this time period that could be for American audiences without being so beholden in the way that the novel is and the original miniseries were to the outsider's gaze and to kind of the white gaze. How much did you view your mission as being something similar or something along those lines? I'll plead ignorance. I don't know the story of Shogun. I'm excited to see it, but I have not read the book and I don't, and I never saw the original series. So I don't know if I can speak to that, but we never felt beholden to anything in this one, except we had this idea of a character on a mission who had a lot to learn while undergoing that mission. And we just told that story. There was no internal or external pressure for it to stand for anything, for it to be anything. Platforms was all just what would be best for the story we wanted to tell. Definitely Mizu being betwixt two races, Japanese and white, gave us a lot of leeway for how we would tell it. We could see it in her perspective and not just from a Japanese perspective. Yeah, it was it was about someone who doesn't feel at home in her own country and might not feel at home in any country. You know, and at the same time that you are making this for Netflix, you're making this for an English speaking audience. What accommodations did you know from the beginning that you would have to be making? And where were the key places in the process that you found yourself needing to strike a balance between authenticity and accessibility? I mean, one of those things was definitely that it was going to be in the English language, not told in Japanese and then translated into English or with subtitles. So we decided we couldn't make it authentic. And I think other movies and programs have tried to have people speak with an accent. So it seems authentic to an English speaking ear that, oh, they have Japanese accents, so therefore they are Japanese. We wanted people to speak the way they speak and realize that this is an Asian American product. We're not trying to be Japanese. We're trying to tell a tale from Japanese history. That made it a multiplicity of, of Asian American accent because it's not a monolith. Hints of California, there are hints of Brooklyn, there are hints, you know, Australian people from around the world. And we just said, we want you to speak as you do and you know perform as you would. And that was very freeing to a lot of our actors. I think where we felt the most obligation for authenticity was on screen, was anything visually represented. Things we could go out of our way for, and I think we succeeded, I was like, if, if we saw any signage or writing, someone had a letter in their hand. We went to uh, Aoi Yamaguchi, who's a brilliant calligrapher and uh, historian of writing, and she would then pen those letters as she would imagine, you know, it's sort of like asking someone to write in like first folio Shakespeare printing and making it bespoke for like, which, you know, this is a female character. So she would write this way, a male character would write this way, what kind of characters would they use? And that allowed us to go really deep and, you know, nerd out on history. We learned a lot from her on that. And then uh, any art we were going to show uh, is, you know, wardrobe is very uh, accurate to the time, food is accurate to the time. We went as deep as we could and our production design team and costume designer, they're all history nerds and really, really brought it. So when it came to the research, did you guys do that together? Did you do it separately? Did you find that there were certain things that were fascinating one of you more than the other? We did it mostly separately and we would share what we found and say, you have to read this, you have to read that, you have to watch this, you have to watch that. But we wrote episode one in 2019 before the world shut down. But the episodes two through eight, I believe, 
were all written after everything shut down. So we had a lot of time to watch movies on the Criterion collection. So we were able to watch a lot of old samurai movies and just old Japanese language films just to kind of get ourselves in that world and find inspiration. And we had time to read the books we wanted to read cover to cover, which was really helpful. We read academic sources, we read fiction, you know, more modern fiction about the time, we read fiction from the time. You know, we gave ourselves a syllabus, we just did as much research as we could, but then at some point we knew we had to start writing. Writers love using research as an excuse to not write. You have to give yourself permission at some point to put it down. But that means once we started generating those scripts, we shared them not just with our design team and their researchers, but with real historians. We brought on a researcher historian, a gentleman named Yukio Lipit, who teaches at Harvard to be our first line of defense, read these scripts, tell us, have we taken liberties by accident, on purpose, uh, where, you know, how much leeway should we have, tell us when we need to change something. And we really said, you know, be hard on it, grade it with a red pen, as it were. And then when we found ourselves needing help with things, or we would call him in advance and say, how do we make this right? It was always, you know, of course, we're going to end up getting something wrong, but we tried. We asked uh, as many questions as we could, and we'll own any mistakes we make. But research, research ended up driving so much story because the time period is so rich. It really taught, you know, learning what culture was like, what people's lives were like, options available to people in different classes and different genders. That ended up driving stories. So we were really grateful for that time. I just weirdly said, I'm grateful that the world shut down. So I don't know if that's a great opinion. I mean, something good <laughs> always comes from something horrible, right? So that we're getting this beautiful art in the form of this show that came out of not just your experience in life together, but also out of the pandemic. And I'm excited to see what comes out of the, the WGA strike too, with all the things that people were, were doing, et cetera. So but getting back on track, I did want to talk about the demo. Obviously, you know, you talked a lot about how adult animation in the form of a drama catering to an, an older audience is a, a new category in our industry. But what were your conversations about the intended demographic for the show? I mean, Dan and I were talking about it and, you you know, we weren't so surprised it's a samurai story, so that obviously there is going to be some graphic violence. But what took us both by surprise was how graphic the nudity and sexuality were. Why were both of those adult elements important and necessary for you both? We always said we wanted the Game of Thrones audience, that that was such a crossover show that people who didn't like fantasy genre would, they, everybody watched it. I think even my elderly Christian parents at least tried out Game of Thrones. We want everyone to give us a shot and hopefully they find something in it. And adding sexuality and violence is a statement that this is for adults. And we tried not to be gratuitous about it, but we wanted to show that you could make these things into art as well. What is the reaction of Netflix when you tell them individual things? Like, I, I suppose that probably 2023, nobody worries about blood spatter, especially when they know the genre. But if you say, and then we've got an episode where there are going to be a lot of animated penises, that's cool, right? <laughs> is there any reaction from the good people at Netflix to that? Working on the show has been a cure for a lot of people's cynicism because they really always said, okay, like, and not because they're like, hey, more penis is the better. It wasn't, there's no penis directive, um, which can now be the title of this podcast. <laughs> yes, there's the headline, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Michael Green says there's no penis directive. It was more, they saw the scripts we wrote in which, you know, you, you may be referring to in our second episode, we have a Matsuri, which is a, an annual festival, and we have an entire village of people strip naked and jump into a frozen river. Like, uh, 
uh, ocean rather into the ice. And but they they learned our ambition to do that in the context of reading it in a script and going, oh, this is all about ritual purification. This is all about showing a cultural event that normally a Western audience would never have access to seeing. Their questions were only inside that. There's no agenda. They were they just saw that we had stories we wanted to tell and that we were telling them well and said okay. And then they they were our first audience and just said what they loved. We had single digit number of notes on our scripts and cuts. Wow. Single that, digit. That doesn't and, happen and very often. Does not happen very often. I've worked a lot of TV. It bears mention. Uh, and and when they gave us notes, it was always about trying to do better something we discussed. So it was, uh, again, it, it had some experiences in television that left me bitter taste in this. Now, for me, television is sunshine and unicorn farts all over again. Yeah. I mean, going back to some of the things that you've worked on, I mean, there's a lot of samurai on your resume there. Logan, why the last man? I mean, do you have other samurai scripts in a drawer somewhere? And uh, and uh, how did your work on those projects really prepare you to cut for what became Blue Eye Samurai? I, you know, funny enough, news uh, dropped yesterday of uh, something else involving potentially a sword that I'll be working on. So uh, I'll, I'll leave that for for a future conversation. We came at this one new. This was a new page turned. This was, this came out of conversations with me and Amber together. How are we going to do something? Because you know, sure, I loved certain movies from a young age, but this was going to be not a retelling of that. This was going to be something that came, you know, that was from both of us. So everything was, you know, partnership in this made it something new. And I had to come at it with very, you know, beginner's samurai mind. Amber talked about going through the Criterion Collection. You guys talked about the research you did. Talk a bit about what the show initially looked like in your minds and then how it shifted and evolved when you began working with Jane Wu and with the animation team. We looked at a lot of the old ukiyo-e woodblock prints just to kind of get an idea of what the world would look like illustrated. We didn't really know how, how was this going to look. We knew it wasn't going to look like a, a Disney cartoon and we knew we didn't want it to look like anime. You know, we have a great appreciation for anime, but we knew we needed to signal to the audience that this was something different. So I, I don't know, when I write, I imagine what the characters look like. And I, I had this sort of hybrid version of actual people and also those ukiyo-e uh, woodblock print people kind of wa- walking through my mind. And Jane actually had the same vision when we met with her that she wanted to draw inspiration from these, you know, centuries old Japanese art and use that as a jumping off point. Um, I don't know if that w- was what you saw in your mind, Michael, when you were writing uh, you your know, scenes. We, we also <laughs> came across some concept art and developed some concept art early on and, you know, and, and all kind of joined hands and said, you know, what if we really made the show look like that. Like so many times you start with concept art and then you see the finished product and it's sort of like, you know, nailed it, you know, when you see the cake it's supposed to be and then the final cake, it doesn't quite look like the original. And we're like, what if we just kept chasing those beautiful images and our show really looks like the original concepts for it because everyone was really psyched to try to see something through that they've never gotten to see through before. For a lot of our artists and designers and and directors, you know, they worked in children's space for a long time or they just worked on things that were more directed from the top down what an aesthetic had to be. And so, you know, we just said, you know, have something you're excited to do, tell us about it, and let's chase that until you have it in hand. And that became a really fun show to run the hour-long space or the you know more than half hour less than an hour other than the pilot it gives you guys the opportunity to do both these very large epic 
action scenes, but also extended scenes where people are making noodles or just long scenes of sword making and sword craft and blacksmithing. How hard was it for you guys to find the rhythms that would allow both of those things to happen at the same time in the same episodes and still have momentum for the series? We spent a lot of time on pacing. You know, we it's an hour drama. We were trying to treat it like with the same level of sophistication as, as we would if it was going to be a live action shoot. All those moments are scripted. You know, if we wanted a slow-mo of blood going through the air or of sparks flying through the air or blood going through the air or a buckwheat flour drifting through the air, a lot of things drifting through the air. Those were all in script and, and we made sure to fight for that screen time from our, with ourselves. But also we were really hard on our cuts. And that's one of the great things about animation is that you get to recut your episode more than just the once. You start with the storyboards and you you really craft them until it's paced right. We would always do uh, rewatch them over and over doing the um, cell phone test, which is where you watch your cut, but you keep your phone just within arm's reach. And I always look like, do either of us absently reach for our phones? Because that just means there's an off-ramp in your mind where you can remember, oh shit, I have to send that text. And uh, then I would make a note, okay, we have to look at that scene. There's a bump in there. Uh, that scene might be, you know, might not be right. And so we would craft or trim or whatnot. But, you know, that was very much a part of the, we're doing an hour drama. So we just did it as we would have as if it was a live action cut. Make sure that you're paced right but give things time. As you guys look at the future of the series and without spoiling anything that happens in the, in the finale, is this something that you can see having a long run in, in terms of multiple seasons? Like, is, Or was this crafted more as a closed-ended story? Oh, no, definitely. We saw it as a four-season arc. And I mean, we need, you know, we need a long time to tell Mizu's tale. I mean, she's got a long journey ahead of her so we just need people to watch it so we can get to the next season we've yeah. even pre-pitched a spin-off so we're very ambitious about it we'd love to keep <laughs> the story going same time period same general world or sort of adjacent time period adjacent world i don't know if i can answer that because <laughs> because what if we don't get to and we want to use it uh i'm gonna be coy. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, I, I want to go back. You talked about earlier experiences in television, and you've created TV shows in the past, but that was you coming up as a background as a TV writer. What kind of clout have the Christie adaptations and, and several of your bigger IP adaptations given you? And, and does it feel different creating a show with that clout, however much you feel like it is, versus when you did kings in the river for nbc and abc back in the day i don't know if i'm aware of any i'll tell you the one of the most fun parts of doing this show specifically blue eye samurai and you know and doing it with amber especially like we aren't animation people like that was new so it was like jumping on set for the first time again and it's really fun to be an idiot and like you know feel like uh, you know out of your element and get to learn something completely new like i mean we knew some and you know have produced shorts or you know have done animated sequences in larger things but this was really like going to be learning how to run a show all over again so any clout real or imagined is just out the window we would start all of our early meetings for months with you know our team or bringing on new members saying like hey we want to start with an apology we're the least qualified people on this call and yet we're in charge Please, one of your favorite you know. things to say was explain it to me like we know nothing 
because we know nothing. <laughs> and, it, you know, our team was very patient with us, but it, and then it allowed us to make decisions with them that didn't frustrate them because we would just say like, hey, tell us what we don't know so that we can help. Like you're asking for resources now or you're, you're trying to get some sort of feedback. We don't want to give you the wrong answer because we don't know. So that was great. It was it was really fun and humbling being new to it all. And, you know, the, the joke that's kind of true is we, you know, now coming out of the first season, we are qualified to run this show. You know, I believe, Michael, that I, I am slash was a fan of King and so the fact that I'm, we're not just you're a very talking. kind man and you get to go straight to heaven <laughs> nice that is yes. that's the first you have a pass a... you got the wristband <laughs> you got the i love kings wristband Woof, straight in if you were taking kings out into the market today where would you take it and do you think there's a current <laughs> tv landscape where that show would find success today oh god i i can't i can't think like that I I can only move forward. If I stop and try to like rethink what would I do now? How could I fix it? How could I get a second season of that show, which the loss of still stings? I think you can die. The rule I try to live by in film and television is no victory laps, no sulking. And I'm not great at it, but at least it's something that I aspire to. Like, yes, be sad, but if you just, if, if I, there be dragon. I can't, I can't, I'll, I'll, I'll lose the whole day just because of that question now. In some ways, it was way ahead of its time. And there, is an appetite for it, but also it was an original new fantasy world or grounded fantasy world. And no one's making originals anymore. And that's one of the challenges that we might face in finding an audience for this because it's an original there. We don't have a built-in fan base of a video game, a comic book, novel, what have you. And, you know, that's the big challenge in today's TV and movie industry. Just there isn't as much original stuff coming out. And you put so much more of yourself into those. Yeah, and given the state of the industry, as you're saying, it's like everyone just wants safe bets and and anything that's not is either getting cut or canceled. It, that is a shame. It is, you know, everyone always bemoans, why is everything IP? I love working with IP. Part of it is, and it's, it's dangerous to say, the audience doesn't show up for original material as much as they should. You know, it's the edge of tomorrow, broke a studio, you know, and now we have the creator, both excellent films that didn't find you know, that will, Edge of Tomorrow became a hit, but only after that studio swore off doing original material for at least a decade. Netflix is excited about original content. They just know that there's always that barrier for awareness. So here's hoping. Well, I sort of started the questioning with the Kill Bill and Yentl comparison. And obviously, Netflix is not going to be able to market similarities <laughs> to Yentl aggressively. <laughs> Tragically, we don't live in that world. <laughs> but on the other hand, in the pilot, you guys do have a scene where you use Battle Without Honor or Humanity, which at this point for people has become kind of the Kill Bill musical theme. Was that kind of an intentional thing so that you could have people go, okay, if people need to find a way to compare this show to something, now they can do it and they can tell people, it's like Kill Bill if you like Kill Bill. Was, was that a kind of conscious connection that you guys wanted to make? Obviously somewhat conscious, but... How conscious? I mean, we used it as temp music for, you know, editing purposes, and we just loved it. <laughs> we just, you know, we, we did. And if, if people say we stole from Kill Bill, great. Great, we great. Here is our big hat. Yeah. Tip of the hat to the master. Exactly. That, that's what I, I would have gone with tip of the hat over stealing as how I would have described okay, it. Okay, all right. I, <laughs> I read. We did steal the sound mixer of Kill Bill to come and mix our show. And Myron Tango did a wonderful job. We would love to hear that Mr. Tarantino watched it, saw that, 
and was pleased. And we do like to end these interviews with the same question. What have you guys been watching and enjoying? Honestly, we've been so busy. We haven't been watching much. <laughs> we have been watching Big Mouth. We just watched Paleolip Scavenger's Ring on uh, oh, yes. uh, Max, uh, which I'm first time I've ever said correctly. I'm still calling it HBO Max. It's a beautiful show. It's so interesting. It's so unique to itself. It's so patient and original. Um, can't wait to watch more. But yeah, we. it's like, oh, there's another great animated show out there. Can't wait for Invincible season two. Uh, tip of the hat to the other, you know, our animated you know, show. Very different. But if people want to watch them and watch our show with theirs, not mad at that. I enjoy the hell of it. But we have been supporting adult animation because it's the, it's the way of the future. The present. The way of the present. The, the present. Days. The present. 28 days for, it to, for people <laughs> to discover adult animation and drama. <laughs> Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. This is, uh, has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Blue-Eyed Samurai is now streaming on Netflix. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you just heard our interview with the creators of Blue-Eyed Samurai, which arrives on Netflix. Lawman Bass Reeves launches on Paramount Plus and Invincible is back with its second season on Amazon. Dan, what you got for us? There's there's a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff, unfortunately, that I couldn't get to this week. I wanted to sample Hulu's Black Cake, which uh, our colleague Angie reviewed. And then there are a few things at the beginning of next week that I might need to kind of backtrack into. Uh, probably we'll talk about Colin from Accounts on Paramount Plus on next week's podcast. I probably will touch on Apple TV Plus's The Buccaneers on next week's podcast, etc. So yeah, lots, lots and lots of content. Uh, let's see, what order do we want to go with? Let's let's start with Invincible, uh, because to me it it points to um <laughs> it points to one of the great annoyances of television. Uh, circa 2023, whenever the hell we are. Um, the, the last episode of Invincible aired in April 2021. I, you can't do that if you're a television network. And I don't suppose that it was anybody's preference on the creative team to have a solid two and a half years between episodes. And yes, there was one little prequel specialty episode, but that doesn't count. Holy cow. When I tuned in to watch my screeners of this was my reaction. Either I don't remember any of this or I don't care about any of this because I haven't watched it in two and a half years. And this is just a problem when you have a show that. I need to say this. I liked the first season of Invincible. I didn't love it, but I liked it. If the second season had come six months or a year after the first, I would have been like, sure, excellent. Let's bring it on. Let's let's hop back into these adventures. Why not? It also doesn't help the show that in those two and a half years, we've had 15, 20 different revisionist superhero things in the sort of R-rated variety. And so I watched screeners. I made it through three episodes um, and things actually did start getting interesting in the third episode. So I'll, I'll say that as, as if you watch it and if your initial reaction is, I don't remember any of this and I don't care for the first two episodes. The third episode was when I started to become invested uh, or to remember what I was invested in. Um, but I kept finding myself watching the various different things that were happening, which were all of the sort of perfunctory adult animation tropes 
ooh, we're going to blow people up. There's going to be blood everywhere, blah, blah, blah. But it's still going to look like an old school Saturday animation um, superhero show. And I kept not remembering, like, is the thing I'm associating with this, is it a plot line from the first season of Invincible that I half remember? Is it a plot line from the second season of The Boys? Is it something from Hulu's Extraordinary? Just all of these adult revisionist superhero stories, which often I really quite like, they blend together somewhat. And if you don't put out a new episode of your show in two and a half years, it's really hard for people to stay invested. And that was my thought watching Invincible is I might have cared a year and a half ago. You just can't make me care now. It it just wasn't good enough for that. It was good. It wasn't two and a half years of of champing at the bit good. And that's where I get annoyed. And I, I feel as if this was a, a misdeed either by Amazon or by confusion within the creative team or whatever. You just can't have two and a half years pass in a in a B to B minus level television show and expect people to be deeply invested. So um, if you're like me, maybe you want to rewatch the finale because that's your best chance of caring. Um, I So I stopped after three episodes because I wanted to watch a couple more episodes, honestly, of, uh, of Blue Eye Samurai. And I've now watched five episodes of Blue Eye Samurai and just a lot of TV this week. And so as a result, I couldn't finish the first season. But I'm really looking forward to finishing the first season because I really enjoyed this show. Um, this is a beautiful, beautiful show. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. It's it's gorgeous from the first frame on, and it's gorgeous in so many different ways. It's not just that the action scenes are are spectacular, and they are, um, and they're you know they're taken from or borrowing from, or advancing from, or evolving from, you know, basically all of the great samurai um, and period martial arts movies that you've, you know, ever seen. It, it is from that tradition. And so the the blood spatter, the gorgeously balletic, violent choreography, etc. cetera, um, as you just heard in our interview, I will add this is really not for children and you will find yourself very awkwardly if you are sitting with a group of small children watching this. Uh, there's, there's more sex than I expected from a show of this type. There's some adult language, whatever. And the violence is, the violence is well executed, so to speak, but it's, you know, like, it's not like that is not so surprising to me. The idea of people getting chopped in half with samurai swords and, and blood, gorgeously spattering everywhere that that's kind of it is what the genre is you know to expect it i'm not saying like this is a show that you should keep out of the hands of children i'm just saying know that it's a little bit on the adult side and you know perhaps for teens more than your younger kids Leslie is making a maybe not even for teens face. What age would you say people should be interested? You're saying somewhere in your 30s, right, Leslie? I'm not saying that, but it's, I don't know, man. I don't have kids and that, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because the closest I have is I have uh, twin uh, nieces who are about to turn seven. And don't show them this. Anywhere near this. <laughs> 
that was yes. Your your seven year old nieces should not be watching Blue Eye Samurai. I I personally believe that your basic fourteen or fifteen year old uh, would probably be able to handle anything that's happening here. Uh, maybe not necessarily sitting in the same room with their parents. Some of that might be a little embarrassing or chagriny, but uh, I mean, when you bring that up, it, it, it's triggering a memory for me because um, we. <laughs> We were in San Diego. My wife and I were in San Diego visiting her aunt and uncle and her uncle's a big TV fan. Um, and he's like, yeah, there's this new show on Netflix uh, years ago. Uh, he goes, have you, have you watched? It's called Orange is the New Black. And we're like, no, what's that? So I knew what it was and we watched it. I didn't know what to expect because I hadn't watched House of Cards on Netflix. But imagine watching lesbian porn with your very Republican uncle. And that's what happened to us. That would not be my preference as an activity, Leslie. She is. Um, yes. Okay. So, uh, you know, on the other hand, I feel like your Republican uncle would probably like Blue Eye Samurai. Uh, I feel like a lot of people would like it. Again, the the animation is, is so beautiful and the the technical aspects beyond it, whether it's the score, uh, the sound design, it's, it's a very, very assured show. Um, and the, the vocal cast is terrific. Um, uh, you know, uh, stars, uh, former TV's top five guest, uh, Maya Erskine as the main character, uh, Mizu. Uh, so yay. Gives me a chance to say Hulu's penis at least once, uh, she is quite excellent, though. But it just a, a great vocal cast. Uh, Massey Oka, uh, Brenda Song, George Takai, Randall Park, um, Michael Green, who co-created it, um, as we mentioned, has done all has written all of those various Agatha Christie, Kenneth Branagh things. And so there's Kenneth Branagh voicing one of the the villains. Just great vocal cast. Episode to episode, the show is doing things with narrative. It's doing things with with culture. Lots of great little digressions, like spending lots of time dealing with the the blacksmith process on a, a fancy samurai sword, um, or how you make soba noodles. There, there's a lot of good stuff in this show. I I really really enjoy uh, enjoyed Blue Eye Samurai. So I'm. Uh, looking forward to to finishing it. And if I hadn't had lots of other things to watch, I really just would have made it through eight episodes in a flash. Though, again, as was discussed in our interview, long episodes. First episode, I think, is 62 minutes, and then it subsequently goes to a sort of 45 to 48-minute range. Uh, definitely doesn't feel long, though. The first episode felt, I, I would say the first episode felt substantive. <laughs> Is what I would say. Not long, but substantive. Um, and yeah, so, and then last of the things that are premiering that I did watch, I watched four episodes of Lawman Bass Reeves, which is executive produced by Taylor Sheridan. It is actually created by Chad Feehan. And it's, uh, look, every few months, there's sort of a, a Twitter meme that goes around where where someone will pass around a piece of information about unexplored or uncelebrated people in history. And Bass Reeves is one of those people who who comes up because the Bass Reeves story is such a, a great story. He was a slave. He was 
forced by his owner to fight for the Confederacy. He escaped. He uh, lived with and learned from several indigenous tribes. And then he became a U.S. Marshal. And he was um, one of the first, if not the only, black U.S. Marshal. He famously brought in thousands of uh, fugitives and other various scoff laws and allegedly was never shot or injured in the process, killed 14 men reputedly. It's a fantastic story. It's a juicy story. It is a story of, it's it's like a tall tale, only it's real. And in the process of trying to make it real, unfortunately, Lawman Bass Reeves makes it really sort of sketched out and dull and dull and dry in a way that to me is is kind of inexcusable for what is such a great great story and i i wish that there was any instinct or or any evidence that anyone was finding the story as awesome as it is it is such an awesome real story and the treatment of it is dry and matter of fact and David Yellowo, who plays Bass Reeves, is very good. He's doing strange vocal and accent things. Uh, it, it kind of shifts. He's he's a little bit Southern in the first episode. By the fourth episode, he's almost doing a Billy Bob Thornton in Sling Blade voice, but with no explanation at all. Uh, like, did someone... in? Because the, the story jumps in time. It's... Uh, the first episode and second episode, then it jumps a couple years forward in time, then it jumps 10 years forward in time. So maybe someone punched the character in the neck in the intervening time. And so he started talking like Sling Blade. I, I don't know. Uh, it, it's still a good performance. It's still very compelling to watch. And Taylor Sheridan has this power now where he can tell anyone to drop in for an episode or two. And so it's like, okay, there's an episode with Dennis Quaid. Will he come back? Who knows? So far, he's only been in one of the episodes I've seen. Uh, Barry Pepper is in, I think, two episodes that I've seen so far. Uh, Garrett Hedlund is in one, if that counts as stunt casting. But I don't know. It feels much smaller than it should. It Like, I get that they want to treat Bass Reeves as a real person and not as a piece of American folklore but I think there's an in-between thing. I would also add somewhat reluctantly because I really don't want to get the emails that uh, that truly having a white executive producer, a white creator showrunner working from a series of books by a white academic to tell the story of this iconic black figure to me, it doesn't feel like the best version of what the storytelling on this should have been. Um, there is no real perspective. There's no real voice. It doesn't capture the flavor of a historical moment other than everyone was dirty because there wasn't indoor plumbing. It, it's it's limited, and I don't feel like it should be limited. I feel like it should be boundless. I feel like it should be epic. And it's it's not so, uh, so yeah. So for this week's reviews, Bass Reeve Lawman, I will say this: it, it, the the four episodes I've seen, 
I would say I like them more than most of the recent Taylor Sheridan shows. Honestly, it it feels like I don't know. It it feels less clumsily soap operatic in the way that Taylor Sheridan likes to do. Um, I was I was much less annoyed by it than sometimes I'm annoyed by Taylor Sheridan's kind of Western iconographic shtick. Uh, but still, I, I just. I, it's it's too good a story to be done with this level of so so ness. Um, but if you want something that actually is epic and iconic, Blue Eye Samurai totally works. And it's been too long since I even talked about Invincible in the first segment of this segment for me to even remember what I thought about it. So for me to remember what I thought about Invincible from two and a half years ago, uh, it's it's borderline impossible and that's just that's a disservice to a creative production and uh i feel like we're getting more and more of this on television i you know shows shows that i really liked that pass so far past the point at which i was still invested in those shows it's why i like something like a letter kenny where it comes out every year promptly or something like starstruck where even if i don't think about it in the 11 months between seasons exactly close enough between seasons where when new episodes come i go okay i can hop right back into this i could not hop right back into invincible maybe you felt more passionately about it than i did and you will be able to so who knows but lots of great stuff coming next week but that's what's this week for more of dan's weekly recommendations be sure to subscribe to the hollywood reporters now see this newsletter and bookmark thr.com slash tv dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you as always for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. As I may have mentioned earlier, if you have questions for future mailbag segments, email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5 at THR.com. But you can always just come say hi to us on social media where she's at Snoodit with two O's and I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N. Let us know what's working, what isn't working. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Dan.